0: Hello, today we will continue our study of the Dhammapada, continuing on with uh, verses 7 and 8, which read as follows. Subhanupasing viharantang indriyesu asangutang bhojanam hi cha matanyung kusitang hi tangwe pasahati maro vato rukhangwa dubalang. Asubhanupasingviharantang indriyesu su-sangvutang bojanam hi cha matanyung sadhang ara dhaviriyang tangwe napasahatimaro vato selangva pabatang So two verses and they're parallel so they're almost the same. It sounds like I said the same thing twice but they're a little bit different. Number seven is uh, translated subhanupasing viharantang for one who uh, dwells seeing the attractive side of things indriyesu asangutang. who dwells with senses unrestrained cha matanyung who doesn't know moderation in food kusitang hinaviriang who is lazy and of inferior or low uh, effort or energy Tangwe pasahati maro. Such a one is overpowered, overcome by mara, by evil. Vato rukangwa dubalang. Just as the wind overcomes a tree of little strength, or of weak, a weak tree. And number eight, asubhanupasing viharantang. For one who dwells seeing the unattractive side of things, or the unbeautiful. Side of things. Indriye susangutang, who dwells with senses restrained. Bojana matanyung, who knows moderation, who does know moderation in food, in eating. Sadhangaradhuviryang, who, who has confidence and faith and has fortified or strong effort and energy. Tangwe nappa sahati maro, such a one. Mara doesn't, evil doesn't overcome such a person. vato to pambatang, just as the wind cannot overcome a mountain made of rock. So we have a, a contrast here. One type of person is like a tree, a, a rotten tree, that the wind can overpower, and uh, the other is a mountain, which of course the wind has a lot more difficulty overpowering. So these two similes were given in regards to two brothers, one verse for each brother. And these two brothers were merchants in the time of the Buddha. And one of them went to hear the Buddha's teaching and, and realized that, uh, that you know, this is sort of true, that uh, you know, we can chase after beautiful things and riches and luxury and money and it really doesn't do us any good so he thought to himself there must be a better way and maybe this is the way and and he saw that this was true that you know, chasing after sensual pleasures doesn't really lead to happiness so he decided that he would uh, follow after what the Buddha taught and maybe find a better way a way to find true peace and happiness and so he, he went and asked permission to ordain and the Buddha said well go ask your brother permission first and he went to his brother and said I want to become a monk you can take all the wealth you want uh, you can take all of my wealth and do what you want. And the other brother said, "What are you crazy? You have you have wives, you have uh, property. What do you?" And he tried to make all these reasons why he shouldn't ordain. Um, but the older brother was was uh, c- convinced, was firm in his idea. So the younger brother thought to himself, "Well, the best way to to stop this is if I go and become a monk with him and and slowly try to convince him." Uh, you know, try to reason with him and and bring him back to the lay life. So the younger brother ordained as well. And so these two brothers ordained under quite different circumstances. The first one was intent upon practicing the Buddha's teaching and and practicing meditation and developing wisdom and understanding and and overcoming his attachments and his desires and, and being free from suffering. And the younger brother was still totally you know caught up in sensual pleasures and thinking about his family, his wife and his, his relatives and, and his wealth, wealth and his home and his money and so on, and always thinking of ways to get the other brother out. So uh, they, they thus, as a result, lived their lives as monks quite differently. The older monk, Mahakala, and the other one was Chulakala. Mahakala uh, lived his life quite seriously, as a monk quite seriously, took it quite seriously. So he went to the Buddha and he asked the Buddha, well, what are the duties in the, in the Buddha's religion? And the Buddha said, there are two duties, as I've talked about before. There are two. The first duty is to study and, the, and, and teach, and the other duty is to practice and, and become enlightened. And the monk said, well, I've become a monk when I'm old, it's probably too late for me to learn all of the scriptures and all of the suttas and so all of the teachings of the Buddha and or to teach to be able to remember all that but I can practice meditation and I would like to to undertake that duty so he asked the Buddha for the teaching on how to uh, how to contemplate the foulness of the of the body and how to how to live in a cemetery and the, how to undertake the practice of one who lives in a cemetery and contemplating death because he, he thought, I guess, because he thought he was old, and, and this is something that was really important to him—the ability to understand death and what does it mean to die, and to be able to see people who had, were dead, and to reflect upon his own mortality, and to be ready for death. Uh, so he undertook this practice, and uh, the other monk, the, the other brother, you know, saw him and he said, "Boy, well, that's," you know, he looked at it as some kind of you know, troublesome. This is what the text says. This was something that uh, you know his older his older brother was doing something that was you know what a bother that is, and so instead he spent all his time you know gossiping and talking and eating and uh, you know sleeping and, and being lazy and probably breaking all sorts of rules, but at any rate being not a very good monk or not at all interested in the Buddha's teaching. So as a result, what happened uh, the, the the older brother. It came that the woman who was looking after the cemetery, she 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 came to know that the monk was there, and he would come late at night and leave early in the morning, so no one would see him. Uh, but she found out about him, and so she brought a, a beautiful woman who had died, the body of a beautiful woman. She brought it and and laid it laid it out, uh, and and called him and invited him to come and look at it. And so he came and looked at this beautiful young, attractive woman's body, and he said, "Okay, now light it on fire." And call me back when, uh, when when the flames have have reached the body. And so he went back to his his kuti and he started meditating. And so when the flames were were approaching the body, she called the elder over, the monk over, and he looked at it and he you know so he watched this body. Burning up first the the skin to change color, and then the skin you know, blistering and 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 cracking, and then the contorting and, and you know becoming charred and burnt in the face, and and as he looked at it, There's the things that went through his mind were they say like you know, the realization that this is something before this the viewing this body would have you know, caused people to forget the truth and forget about reality it would cause them to go crazy in the mind you know, all of the chemicals of course that start to work you become intoxicated people would look at this body and become drunk on the chemical lusts and uh, he said but now look at it and he said Tru- truly everything is impermanent and then he said to, he, he reminded to himself something that the Buddha of course had taught in regards to uh, the, the de- in regards to death and that is anicca vata saṅkhāra upādvaya amino Upajitva sangupa and he thought of this, this verse, which, means, which is in the Dhammapada, I believe. Uh, anyway, it's, it's somewhere in the... I have to remember exactly where it is. Quite sure it must be in the... We'll come to it, I think. Uh, vata sanghara, all saṅkhāra are impermanent. Uh, they arise and they... They're of the nature to arise and, and cease. Upajitwa nirujanti, having come they go, having arisen they cease. Te sang pasamo, so-called the final stilling or being, you know, free from this incessant uh, arising and ceasing. That is true pleasure, true peace, true happiness. And so he thought like this, and he realized that actually this is how it goes: you're born, and then you have to get old and sick and die, and this arising and ceasing, this coming and going. This incessant uh, birth and death that we have to face—this is really the problem. And so he took this as a, you know, something that woke him up and something allowed him, that allowed him to create a, you know, kind of a paradigm shift, a different way of looking at things inside. And so then, when he started meditating on this all the time, coming back to this, all of his attachments to the body were given up. You know, and his ability to practice then vipassana meditation to see things clearly. As he was looking at his his own attachments to the body, he was able to look at them in a new light, obviously, and so this helped his meditation, and he was able, as a result, to become an arahant, enlightened. This is what happened to Mahakala. Tulakala was another story. Now it so happened that, because of all of his uh, <clears throat> antics and his way of living his monk's life, he uh, obviously wasn't very mindful and wasn't very prepared for. Uh, anything pleasant and this is you know, we're going to get to when we talk about the verses what the difference is here and what the importance is uh, and so it happened that one day the, all of the monks were invited to the house of Mahakala and Chulakala and, Chula and uh, so Mahakala sent Tulakala ba- ob- back to the house to prepare the seats and to make sure that the Buddha's seat and the chief disciple's seats and then the, senior monk seats and then the lower monk seats it has to go in order and, and make sure it was all orderly and so he went and when he got there they, you know, they, no one took him seriously because these people weren't really religious anyway but, but at any rate he wasn't a very serious monk so they didn't take him seriously then they joked with him they put all the seats in the wrong position they put the, the younger monk seats at the front and the senior monk seats at the back and put the Buddha seat in the wrong place and so he was saying, "No, no, no! Don't do this! Don't do this! Don't do this!" And they looked at him and they they started making a joke of him. They said, "Who are you? Who do you think you are to come and tell us and to order us around?" And they said, "Who gave you permission to go forth?" And then they took his robes. So they pulled his robes off, stripped him naked, and put white clothes on him. You know, surrounding him, there were two two wives. You know, you know um, outnumbering him. And I guess all the servants or whatever, they all kind of you know, ganged up on him put white clothes on him put a, a wreath of flowers on his head and sent him off said okay now go you go and get the Buddha go and bring the Buddha they disrobed him and the text goes that he wasn't really concerned about this he was like oh whatever okay I'll go back in white clothes because he he had no interest in being a monk anyway and the text also says that this is uh, this is the nature of monks who have recently gone forth and I've seen this before where they they, they don't have this sort of Idea that oh now I'm I'm a, now I'm a monk now I have to kind of be a representative of, of uh, the monastic order and so on and so you know they don't see a difference they go back they're able to go back and forth I think after you've been a monk for some time it would be more difficult and you'd you'd have a diffi- more difficult time wearing pants and and a shirt and so on I, I would anyway. Um, so anyway, so he then he, he goes back to the, the Buddha and he, he says, you know, now the time has come to, for, the, for the meal. And uh, so everyone's like looking at him, you know, what happened to him and realizing that he had been disrobed by his wives. And so they came back and they ate, uh, they ate the meal and the Buddha gave the blessing and, and so on. Finished and did all the ceremony of, of the, the giving of the food and went back to the monastery now uh, as a result so as a result the younger brother was no longer a monk and he stayed at home and he went back to his home life Uh, and this got the wives of the elder brother thinking see in India I guess rich people had lots of wives because according to the story the younger brother had two wives their middle brother who wasn't with them had four wives and the older brother had eight wives Uh, this is how the story goes so the eight wives of the elder brother who was now an, an enlightened being uh, decided that hey this is you know this is something this is a good idea they got their husband back these two wives so what if we got get our husband back so they invited the Buddha to come again with all the monks and uh, and this time they were hoping that uh, it would be Mahakala who would come and, and, and prepare the seats but unfortunately it was uh, unfortunately for them uh, another monk was, uh, was instructed to come and, and do the seat arrangement, so they didn't get the chance. Now the Buddha came and they had the whole ceremony, and at the end the Buddha said, okay, we're going to leave Mahakala, the older brother, he'll stay and give the blessing, give the, 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 the desana, the talk, he'll give a, an instruction to the people. It's because after they give the meal, the, the, the monk will always, as a tradition, would give some kind of teaching as a kind of a, a, a thanks. Or appreciation of the, of the gift. And so the, the Buddha said, Leave him alone here to, 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 to give this blessing, which was like, you know, all the monks are, are looking at each other like, Is he serious? Is this, you know, is this for real? Because, they, you know, the, the day before or, or recently before, the other monk had been disrobed by these two wives. So, what was going to happen with these, uh, these eight wives? So on the way back, they're all talking about this. And like, you know, did the Buddha realize what he was doing, or you know, or, or you know, is is there something he knows that we don't? What's going to happen with this guy? Is he going to be disrobed, or, or is he not going to be disrobed? And uh, well, I think we can all guess the outcome of this story. That there's no no way for him, to be disrobed. But apparently, what happened, and this is the story. I'm not going to dispute it. I'm just going to tell it. Uh, the story goes that he was surrounded by his eight wives, and this—you know—he's trying to give this this discourse, and they're like, "Oh, what what are you doing? Talking, you know, trying to preach to us? Who are you? Who gave you permission to ordain?" And they tried to grab his robes and so on. But of course, he wasn't at all the same as his younger brother, and he wasn't at all interested in you know in in playing their games. So he entered into a meditative state and flew floated up into the air, you know, above their heads oh. and. Actually, popped the top off the roof. You know, there was, it would have been straw roof, not tile or anything. And flew back to to where the Buddha was. So the Buddha was talking to the monks at the time, and he said, "What are you?" He, he heard the monks talking about. He said, "What are you talking about?" And they said, "Well, we're we're kind of uh, confused. You know that you know the Buddha surely is aware that." Um, you know, Chulakala was disrobed by his wives, so we're just wondering what's going to happen to Mahakala. I mean, isn't it dangerous to leave him alone with his uh, his wives? And the Buddha said, "What do you think? These two are the same, my son, and that uh, that uh, useless man who uh, who disrobed." And he said, "He said they're as far apart as a, tree, uh, a rotten tree and a mountain." And this is when he gave these two similes. He said, Subha, Nupa, Singh, and so on. He said, a person who is intent upon beauty, upon uh, the attractive nature of things, who has their senses unrestrained, uh, who doesn't know moderation in food, who is lazy, who has little little energy, such a one is overcome, Mara, evil overcomes such a one, overpowers such a one just as a tree just as the wind overpowers a weak and rotten tree. And he said, but on the other hand, a person who sees the uh, unattractive side of things and who guards their senses, who is restrained in the senses, who knows moderation in food, who is uh, confident and, faith, and has faith, uh, who has strong and, and uh, established energy and effort, who... Such a person is not overcome by Mara. Mara doesn't, evil doesn't overpower such a person, just as the wind cannot overpower a mountain made of rock. And as he said these last words, Mahakala landed at his feet and bowed down and prostrated to the Buddha. And that ends the story. So uh, I think this is a rather important verse. It, It gets a little closer to the core than I think we've gotten with the other verses, it gets closer to the practice, I think, uh, in the sense that it gives us some fairly uh, specific um, practices or, or aspects of our practice, guidelines for our practice, um, and, and uh, sort of a way of, of establishing whether we're on the right path or on the wrong path. So the first one, the first part, um well, well, for the first, the 1st let's talk about Mara, I think. We should talk about what this means. The word Mara means, as I said, it means simply evil. But we can understand that there are five kinds of evil in Buddhism. And as I understand, this is, if I remember correctly, this is somewhere in, I think, the, the Book of Fives of the Anguttara Nikaya. You have to check it again. But I have read it. Uh, so the five kinds of Mara, the first one is uh, Kandamara, our our, our aggregates you know, the physical and the mental part of our being this, is some, this has some evil to it or there's an evil side to it there is a, a danger there and the danger is of course in clinging because uh, you know, old age, sickness and death are, are inherent in them so there is an evil there the evil comes when you get old when you get sick, when you die it comes for people who have sicknesses people who have uh, disabilities and so on People who have something, uh, some kind of, uh, uh, or, or when, when these things change um, and they cause us some kind of difficulty, when they change in a way that we don't want them. Because actually there's nothing wrong with old age sickness and death. But it's the truth is it's because of the change. You know, we're used to being powerful and, and exercising and, and, and uh, running and jumping and playing and so on and now we can't do that. Uh, we're used to a... a, a pleasant feeling in our body and now we don't have that uh, we're used to freedom from, from painful feelings now we have painful feelings and so on so it's be- because things are changing and they're changing in a way that that we are partial against you know, we, we would rather things be a different way uh, we're attached to a specific way of being when this arises it becomes an evil thing for us I mean it's a real problem for so many people I don't think we need to argue about that uh, so that's the first kind of mara. The second one is Samara, the, the evil of defilements. So that in our mind we have certain things that are, we can understand to be evil. Uh, greed is evil, anger is evil, hatred, conceit, um, mm, fear is, is not a good thing, worry, uh, distraction, doubt. These are all things which are evil in the sense that they cripple us. And really that's that's all, how we should understand evil to be in this sense. We're not talking about immoral uh, in the sense of, of of being outside of a code of, of what is proper. It's improper, it's immoral, as I've said before, because it cripples you, it does bad things to you, it, it causes suffering. Uh, it's a utilitarian um, sort of doctrine or idea. The concept of evil here is in a utilitarian sense. It means uh... it, it, it has a, a function to disable and cripple us uh... so anger is something that cripples the mind, greed is something that cripples the mind these are things which infatuate you, which, which intoxicate you, which give rise to chemical reactions and, and, and addictions in the mind whereby you're unable to separate right from wrong, where you're unable to be impartial and wise and to understand what is in your benefit so you end up, you know, this is why people become addicted to drugs uh, and so on my people fall into many great problems so this is an evil this, the third evil is uh, abhisankhara mara which means our karma Abhisankara means formation but in this you know, simple definition is our karma, our deeds as our deeds can be great, uh, a great evil to us when, if you've hurt other people it can be a great danger to you if you've done things that get you in trouble with other people it can get you in trouble with the law it can come back to haunt you it, it certainly comes back to, to haunt your, your mind and the guilt that you feel because of the bad things that you've done. Uh, but it can haunt you in many ways. It can come back at the moment of death where you remember it and where it leads to, to some kind of clinging or aversion or fear or anger and a bad rebirth uh, as well. So it, it can have many different uh, consequences. Obviously, if we develop bad thoughts and, and as a result do lots of bad deeds, uh, it's going to come back and haunt us. When we've hurt other people, they're going to come back and hurt us. If we've, uh, you know, we'll feel guilty about it, and when we die, uh, our mind will be impure, and as a result, we'll continue on in an impure way. So that's number three. Number four is machumara. Machumara means just death. Uh, so different from Kandamara is in regards to the, the, the changing in the aggregates uh, in the body and the mind. Machumara is the fact that we all have to die. And this is uh, an evil thing, you know, it's, again, it's not evil, it's only evil in the sense that it, it, it cripples you. Uh, for a person who is keen on m- m- being wealthy and rich and powerful and so on, I mean, this is the ultimate crippling, the ultimate uh, end to your power, end to your devices, to your design. You know, your intention is this, 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 be this, 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 you know, de- then death comes. It can even come when your plans aren't fulfilled. It can come tomorrow. I, I, I could be gone tomorrow. Any of us could be gone. We could be dead on a moment's notice, without, without notice. So this is something that is an evil that we should keep in mind. And Again, it's just something that, um, that can cause difficulty for people who cling, and it's only really for people who cling. And that's, that's the difference between these two verses as I'll come to. The fifth one is Devaputamara, which I don't think is really, uh, no, it does come to play, I suppose. Devaputamara means an angel like Satan, a fallen angel, <clears throat> much in the same way as Christian Satan. Uh, Mara is someone who is said to have followed the Buddha around trying to find some way to uh, get the Buddha to, to fall into some kind of defilement or to do the wrong thing, to trick the Buddha in this way and that way. He's said to have come around to all the monks and tried to trick them and their stories about how he tried to trick this monk or that monk and how he was able to trick certain monks and how he was not able to trick those monks who had been practicing. Uh, so clearly it's the same, the same issue here. And this one does come into play actually because medita- many meditators talk about having hearing voices, uh, seeing visions and so on during their meditation. It comes into play with other religions where people say they have seen God uh, where someone, where God came and told them this and that, or where an angel came and told them this, or a voice came and told them this and that. And uh, the, the, it's it's a very important answer that we that has to be has to be stated, and and we should we should all hear and be. It should be clear in in our minds. We should be aware of this fact, uh, or or at least you know as a question to ourselves, that the question is not whether you heard or saw or, or, you know, experienced some, whether you experienced something. The question is not even whether someone else, whether that, that experience came from an external source. I mean, th- those are two questions people ask, you know, was it really God talking to me? Was it really, did someone really come or did I imagine it? Uh, and then the question of, did you really experience it or are you just lying to us? You know, these two are two questions that people ask, but that, those aren't really the questions. The question is whether you can trust the voice that you heard. You, know, you say it was God, but you know, that's where we, we can't trust you, because you, how do you know it was God? How do you know it was not Satan posing as God? And I think this is a very important question. It's one that many meditators in, in modern times, non-Buddhists and so on, wouldn't even think of. But as Buddhists and, and as open-minded people who, who are open to the idea that yeah maybe there are spirits out there and angels and gods and so on, um, it's something that we should we we should incorporate into our understanding of these things or our open-mindedness. It's another question we should ask, not just is he lying to us or um, you know is he is he just imagining it, but also uh, you know is 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 the voice he's hearing coming from a good place? Is it, is it something that can be trusted? So even if, you know, we, because we had a monk once in Thailand who committed, who tried to commit suicide on several occasions. And why? Because voices were telling him to. Voices said to him, if he killed himself, he would be mm, something like the phoenix or something like that. He tried to, he set himself on fire and tried to burn himself. He would be reborn as a bodhisattva or some ridiculous thing. He, would, he was a little bit, you know, he's much better now apparently, but at the time he was quite um, wound up, so uh, and all because of voices that he heard in his head. So, you know, the question doesn't just have to be, oh, he's just making it up. That doesn't have, that doesn't have to be the answer. The, the answer can be, you know, just because you hear, just because someone's telling you something, whether it's in your head or whether it's you know in your ear, doesn't mean you should listen to them. And this is the, this is the story of Devaputta That uh, the, the importance of it, I think, is that it can come to people and so you don't have to question whether it's real or not but you have to question whether it's worth following or not because people's, you know, unless it's someone you can really trust and you've lived with a long time and who has led you in a good way that's, uh, you know, don't, you wouldn't go listening to a stranger on the street just because they told you to do this or that why are you listening to a stranger in your head? what's the difference? okay, so these are the five maras so mara can overpower one type of person and not overpower another type of person the type of person that Mara can overpower is a person who sees the beauty and the attractive side of things. And this is something that, of course, is, is um, unacceptable to many people, the idea that we should give up the beautiful side of things, that we should um, cease our uh, attachment to the beautiful side of things. And I'm not going to say anything to that. If you're still the type of person who uh, likes to follow after these things, then well, just listen on and you'll get to hear our understanding of what's in store for you. Um, because there are disadvantages to it, but to each their own. And I'm, I'm, you know, obviously not everyone is going to follow the teachings that I teach. Not going to follow the Buddha's teachings. Um, you know, there are many different paths, and people go on many in many different directions. In this case, we have two separate individuals: one who went one way, and the other who went the other way. The problem with a person who goes the one way. It's not that we're going to to, uh, say bad things about them. It's not that we're going to look down upon this person. But the problem with with following that way is that Mara overpowers you. These five evils will overpower you. And they will have uh, influence over you. All five of them. And you can see this. There are examples I could give. I don't want to go on and on and on. But I think it should be quite clear. Because I'll I'll just say in brief why it, it occurs a person who, who looks at the attractive side of things is then partial they're developing partiality towards this and this experience as a result when they get old, sick and die they'll be upset when, uh, when, when things come that they don't want the defilements will arise uh, the the kandamar, the gilesa the, uh, the abhisankara they will do bad deeds as a result of these things people fight, you know, why do people fight over dead people their inheritance, people fight when they're alive, husbands fight with wives um, children fight with parents friends fight with friends this you see uh, constantly all over the world and why? because people see the beautiful side of things because people are attracted to this and attracted to that this is the danger this is what we don't see there's, there's many dangers we could go on and on a person this, this reason why this is is because the person is a person who doesn't guard their senses who doesn't contr- restrain their senses so when they see something, they, you know, they they let themselves, you know, give rise to partiality. They, they look at it, oh, that's beautiful. They look at that, that's ugly, and they don't try to go deeper. They don't try to penetrate and see actually the truth. That in fact, well, that's no different from that. It's seeing. It's light touching the eye. The reality of it is the same. Uh, the reality is one thing. Our, you know, the brain functioning and the, however the our brain has been set up and our our, um, the chemicals in the brain and so on and our mind, the mind's attachment and the mind's uh, tendencies to you know, me- remembering how this brought pleasure and so on uh, are another thing because in fact one thing is, is no different from another the, the reality is actually quite impartial and, and thus true experience of reality is actually quite um, neutral in the sense but in, in the sense of being natural you know, there are the ups and the downs, and there's the rain, and there's the sun, and so on. And there's the change, but it's natural, and there's no attachment. It's not like it's just always the same thing. When, you, when you're clearly in touch with reality, it changes, it moves, but you change with it. and It's, it's interacting rather than reacting. That's all. But this, this has to come about through guarding and through restraining the senses, in the sense of when you see something, there should be a filter. You know, because um, unless you're enlightened, unless you're already clearly aware of reality as it is, there's, there's constantly um, a filter of a different sort, the filter of partiality, liking and disliking. When you see something right away, there's the reactions to it. So instead we have this kind of um, a, a filter to purify it, to get rid of the, the, the partiality. And that's simply to see that this, this is seeing. So when you see something, you remind yourself, that's seeing. Instead of saying, oh, that's beautiful, or oh, that's ugly, and so on. You, you come to, to um, be impartial. This is seeing, that's seeing, uh, this is hearing, that's hearing. And you find that yourself, you know, people talk about this as being kind of boring, or, or the kind of thing that, that makes you totally uh, a, robot, a robot, or inhuman, or so on. And that the ups and the downs are a part of humanity—the likes and the dislikes. I've talked about this before, but in the end, the answer is: Well, try for yourself. You know, you've tried partiality and you, your likes and your dislikes, and they haven't made you truly happy. Try this for a change. See what happens when you just know this is seeing, this is seeing, this is hearing, this is smelling, this is tasting, this is feeling, this is thinking, this is walking, this is standing, and so on. And see what happens. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Many people have so uh, guarding the senses so we guard them with mindfulness basically it just means to when you see something it should only be seen a person who doesn't know uh, moderation in eating now this is important because food is really the one thing that we need to survive and it's, it's really the biggest deal uh, for all people you know, it's the one that is totally universal you, you can't go without food no one can go without food not easily anyway so it's something that we have to be very careful about, and it's very easy to abuse it. If you abuse it, it leads to your physical discomfort and, and sickness. It also leads to mental uh, mental defilement, where a person who, who engages in, in overeating or indulgence in sweet foods and salty food, or, you know, delicacies, uh, their likes and so on, their attachments, um, something which intoxicates the mind—it it takes away your ability to see things clearly. Kusitang hinawiri, a person who is lazy and, and has hasn't the energy, who doesn't get up and practice, who doesn't push themselves to uh, to develop themselves, because it's very easy to suffer. Actually, it's very easy to let yourself go in a way that is painful and unpleasant. People do it all the time, right? People who are depressed can stay that way for years. It takes effort. It takes work, actually. It's something that we should be aware of. It takes work for us to actually purify our minds, to be clear and to see things as they are. It's something that you have to work hard at, actually. We should be always working on it. Something that this should be continuous. So the work here is reminding yourself again and again. Now I'm meditating. Now, now I'm seeing. Now I'm hearing. When you're eating your food, you can be mindful of chewing, chewing, and tasting and swallowing, being aware of it. The, the mindfulness should be continuous. And this takes effort. It takes work to remind yourself again and again. When you want to go back to your old ways, to pull yourself up out of the mud, like you want to fall back into the mud and pull yourself up and keep pulling and pulling and it's like it's really like uh, you know in the beginning you just fall back into the mud all the time you're pulling you're, you're working hard to change your mind to change your habits and the habits keep coming back you keep falling into the same old habits again and so people get discouraged by this I was talking about it it's like lifting weights right eventually you get stronger you keep pulling You keep pulling and pulling, your, pulling yourself really out of the mud Uh, eventually you get stronger, you know, that that doesn't move you're pulling this cart out of the mud say, the the cart keeps going back in but eventually you get stronger and eventually you get so strong that you can actually pull it out, so we should never be discouraged just because we we fall back into defilement, this is one great thing about the fight with Mara, it's it's eternal you can take forever and as long as you're building up strength eventually you'll get strong enough to fight there's there's no defeat now here we say Mara overpowers this person But the great thing is that Mara Mara has to work forever To keep us in samsara All it takes is once to get free from the mud And once you're free, you're free There's the Mara has no power over you We see how this works um, Very clearly I think in the monastic community Because there are monks who are totally corrupt And um, something that I, I, I think should be clearly stated, not all monks are truly practicing. And I'm not going to hide that. I'm not going to try to pretend that we're all holy or so on. I think there are incredibly terrible things happening in the monastic uh, community, uh, if you can call it that anymore. There are, there are people who are wearing robes but you know, acting as um, whatever, uh, business people, or, or are, are engaging in total immorality in in, in so many different ways. Uh, and then there are people who are in the robes who are pure and are really practicing these both you can see today I, I would like to make it clear that uh, you shouldn't think that just because someone is wearing a robe that it means something it, it, it has a meaning uh, for those people who give it meaning for those people who, who give it meaning you know? You know, there, there's a, it's like a vehicle you have a car, if you just leave it on your parked on your, on your lawn it has no meaning it has no purpose, it just looks good it's something that people come and say, wow, what a powerful car. And you can say, yeah, yeah, powerful, but it could, you don't know, the engine could be rotten inside. It looks good. But when the car is actually out driving, when you drive it around, then people can say, that car is well-tuned, that car drives fast, that car is, is smooth, and so on. Then you can see how, how it goes. As the monk's life is like this. If you don't use it, it's it's meaningless. Uh, so, we, But what we can see is the incredible importance and the danger... Uh, in re- in in regards to these dhammas, that a person who cultivates bad habits, uh, who gets caught up in entertainment, who gets caught up in indulgence, who gets caught up in laziness, sleeping and eating, and uh, and and worldly things, uh, it it grows on you like a creeper. Buddha would say it's like a a vine. You know, they have this great tree, and uh, Tree, the tree, there's a vine growing up and the tree says, ah, it's just a little vine, you know, it's just a seed, what's the, what's the deal? And then they say, no, 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 you don't, 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 uh, don't think of it as just a small thing and that tree thing like, no problem. Eventually the, the vine comes up and strangles the tree and kills it. Uh, and as the Buddha said, it's like this, it, it creeps up on you. In the beginning you think, ah, just a little bit here, a little bit there. And before you know it, it's years and years have gone by and you, you've gotten yourself in a rut. And then Mara comes, boom, you get sick, you get old, and you're not ready for it. And Mara overpowers such a person. I've experienced, uh, I, I have, you know, different, different experiences with this. Like, I, you know, so many things have happened since the time I was ordained. I've been threatened with uh, physical abuse, physical violence... Uh, I've been threatened with, uh, with the opposite which is women proposing to me and so on I mean, and, and so I can really re- this really resonates with me the importance of this, our state of mind the importance of being ready uh, there's a story that in the Tao Te Ching Lao Tzu he talks about how a, a master is always ready like, an, like a, a warrior in enemy territory and you kind of have to be like that you, you don't have to be always worried and paranoid but you have to always be ready, and you have to be strong. And this is really the wonderful thing about mindfulness: how how it prepares you for anything, and how you really do become strong like a rock. And so that anything that comes, nothing that comes can 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 uh, can can blow you over, just as uh, the wind can can't blow over a a mountain. You know, like I had uh, this woman come up, and she said, well, can monks get married?" <laughs> no, and she so was like. Uh, Oh, well, are you going to be a monk for your whole life? And like, yes. And I walked away, uh, you know, s- staying strong when, when these things come up. I was threatened as monk was going to hit me with a broom once. And, uh, you know, th- these are just tests. I mean, Actually, at the time, it wasn't a big deal. But afterwards, you know, when your mind goes over it and how it did, it, it can really cause you suffering. You know, when you're thinking about this beautiful woman who proposed to who, you know, wants me to marry her, when you think about this monk who was an idiot and who did this how much suffering it can bring to you uh, and, and you know, how, how, how dangerous it can be for your mind how it can lead you on the wrong path I know many people who have disrobed because, uh, because of difficulty because they weren't able to take it I mean uh, th- it, this isn't of course totally reserved for the monkhood I mean all of these things apply to our daily, uh, apply to ordinary people living in the world Um, It's very easy to get on the wrong path and to become, to be taken unawares and off guard by the evils of life, by the problems of life. We don't see it. If we live our lives and everything's going well, we think, ah, yeah, no problem, let's let's just eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. But the question is, what happens when you, what's it going to be like when you die? Are you really going to be ready for it? What if you don't die right away but you get really sick, you know, you get cancer or you get this or you get that? What are you gonna do then? You're gonna whine and complain and suffer because you're thinking about all the wonderful things that you're addicted to. I mean it's clear it shouldn't be something that's hard to it's hard to understand. Now a question might arise as to why then it's good to look at unpleasant things. Why did this monk go off and and look at this this uh, the horrible thing, this horrible burning body? I think actually in this case it, it's, it's easy to understand because the, the burning body is such a shock and it helps you to, to let go, you realize this is just like wood. It's not uh, me, it's not mine, it's just I'm carrying around this sack of wood but that's just going to be uh, fuel for the fire uh, at the end of the day. Um, but the I guess really the point in, in general in looking at the, the uh, repulsive side of things is just to balance the scales. For some people, because there are some people, many people, let's say most people, who are attached to the body, who think of it as something beautiful, something as a, something attractive, and so as a result, when it changes, when it's no longer beautiful and, and attractive, they become upset and worried. So many people, how many people out there have have uh, eating disorders, or, or, you know, obsessions with makeup and plastic surgery and all of these things, how many people? So, an incredible number of people who have this obsession and, and suffering. How many people suffer because their teeth are in the wrong position, because their uh, you know, nose is too big, or their ears are too big, or they're, they're too fat, or they're too short, or they're too tall, or so on. How many people suffer from that because of the attachment to the body? Uh, the attachment to a beautiful body. You want your body to look like a movie star and so on, and you, you're so attracted to these beautiful people. Well, when you start to see that actually the, the the body is full of all sorts of repulsive things, and it, it comes back a little bit more in perspective, and you see that actually the body is just the body. If it's tall, it's tall. If it's short, it's short. If it's big, it's big. If it's small, it's small. If it's this color, it's this color. If it's that color, it's that color, it's really pretty meaningless. You know, having large breasts, or having a large behind, or having you know, hips, or, or you know being having a large belly, all of these things are just... Just what they are, you know, having face this shape or this color or so on. Uh, It's it's all, you know, just like wood, carrying around this this big sack of wood, or as one teacher said, he said this uh, portable toilet, (laughs) full of full of uh, urine and excrement. This is what he said. You You can think of it that way. It's something that does help. It's not it's not a replacement for true insight and impartiality. But it helps to balance the scales. For some people, it doesn't work. For some people, it just makes them depressed and upset and angry. For such people, they should go the other way and, and practice loving kindness. I've talked about this before. Those kinds, of, these kinds of meditations, are suitable for different individuals. For a person who's angry and negative by nature, they should focus on positive things like love and kindness, and so on. It's a different kind of meditation. Uh, but ultimately, in the end, we focus on insight. When your when your mind is clear with insight, and when you're able to see things as they are, when you know, your, your eight wives surround you and they want to take you, strip you, strip you of your clothes, uh, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that? When you can see things as they are, there's nothing can harm you. The story of uh, an arahant who was raped by her cousin, uh, an enlightened be- a nun, uh, a female monk, raped by her cousin. And it it didn't phase her at all. You know what she said? She said, "Don't do this. It's bad for you." you know, he said, "She said, beware to him." And when and indeed, when he left, when after he had finished, he he left her her kuti. When he put his foot on the ground, it sunk, and the the earth couldn't bear his weight because she was enlightened. Not it wasn't just rape; it was rape of an enlightened being. Just you know, like. Uh, the rape is, is a terrible thing, but, but to rape an enlightened being, the earth couldn't carry his weight and he sunk and, and fell straight to hell. was the story. But for a person whose mind is, for the, for the arahant, for the person whose mind is strong, uh, they, nothing can overtake them. And the comparison that the Buddha made is for a person who is like the rotten tree, well, evil overpowers them just like the wind. And for a person who is like the mountain, standing strong, nothing can overpower them, no matter how strong the wind, even a hurricane, can't overpower the mind of an enlightened being. So, this is the teaching on verses number 7 and number 8. Thank you for tuning in, and hope this has been of some use. All the best.